All right, coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher and my colleague Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. Italy is set to have its most far-right government since World War II. The leader, the leader of the country's ultra-conservative party claiming victory in a general election. Our live report from Rome in just a moment. Meantime, in Russia, growing protests over Vladimir Putin's mobilization order. An independent monitoring group saying that more than 2,300 demonstrators have been detained since last week. On Wall Street, U.S. stock futures are down right now following Friday's sell-off. The Dow is at its lowest level since November 2020. Investors very concerned, very worried about more rate hikes and also a potential recession as well. In Asia, the Nikkei shared 2.7%, while the Seoul Kospi lost 3%. Uh, in the season, Hong Kong and Shanghai both closed in the red as well. Meantime, the British pound fell to a record low against the dollar after the UK announced major tax cuts. It has since clawed back a little bit of those losses. The government is planning to issue large amounts of bonds to help fund its spending plans. Let's bring in Anna Stewart joining us live now from London. So, Anna, there's huge concern here, huge concern about the health and the state of the UK government's finances, especially when you're combining tax cuts with large amounts of spending. Just walk us through the reasons behind this decline in the pound. Essentially, what we're seeing here is a credibility gap, really, I think, on the markets between what the UK government, the new government, wants to do in terms of those huge tax cuts, huge spending, and what the market believes is actually sustainable in terms of borrowing. And investors just don't look to be that confident. On Friday, we saw a huge sell-off in UK government bonds. It was actually the worst performance for the five-year gilt since 1985. Let that sink in, worse even than Black Wednesday. And today, I'm not sure if we have the gilt for you, but the 10 years performing particularly badly, hit a highest level for, in terms of the yield since 2010. And look at the pound. Now, this has actually come back, what you're seeing here now. In the Asian session much earlier this morning, it was around a dollar and three cents. That is another multi-decade low at this stage. Now, volumes were thin, I have to say, because it was the Asian session, and we are looking at a very strong dollar. So as ever with a currency, there are two sides really of the coin, and we're seeing lots of currencies uh, down against the dollar today, but not the sort of losses we're seeing here on the pound, which is also down against, for instance, the euro. Now, the problem here is this is a lack of confidence from investors, and the UK government needs confidence. It runs a huge current account deficit. It would need to borrow a huge amount from foreign investors even without these latest plans from the government. And of course, borrowing costs are only getting higher. So what are the options here? There are two, really. The UK government could row back its big plans so it could uh, sort of unspook the markets, if you will. I think that's very unlikely. Or the Bank of England could perhaps step in and try and stave these huge losses. But that might not be that effective. But at this stage, investors need something to happen so that we don't see the pound falling to potentially parity against the dollar. Zane? Well, let's just talk about one of those options that you pointed out, the Bank of England possibly stepping in. I mean, how likely is it at this point the Bank of England is going to raise interest rates by, let's say, 1% mm. sooner than expected, do you think? Well, that's certainly what I think looking at economists' comments today is possibly the most expected action we've, we would see, but we've not seen anything at this stage. Um, just to bring you some of those expectations, Samuel Toombs, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, he tweeted today to say markets are pricing in a three-quarters of a percent increase in the rate before the end of this week. He continued to say Sterling will weaken further if Governor Bailey doesn't act. 
Although he does add, as you'll see there, I expect he'll do that, but let's see. There are two things the Bank of England could do, aren't there? They could always follow the sort of typical central bank guidance, forward guidance, tell the market you're going to act aggressively come November, or it could act as an emergency as soon as this week. Um, and that seems to be generally the expectation I'm reading today. Economists, for instance, at Capital Economics say they think emergency action could be the most effective and they see perhaps a rate hike of one to one and a half percent as soon as today. They do make the point, though, that higher interest rates will make the sustainability of the government's big spending plans even more unsustainable. So the Bank of England, not for the first time, is very much between a rock and a hard place. Zane. All right, Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, Italy's far right looks set to form the country's next government after Sunday's election. The biggest winner could be Giorgia Maloney, the leader of the Brothers of Italy party. She's widely expected to be the country's first female prime minister. Barbie Nadeau joins us live now from Rome. So, Bobby, it's interesting because uh, Miss Maloney's rhetoric was very fiery during the campaign, but in the past sort of 24 to 48 hours, she seems to have struck a much more uh, conciliatory tone. J just walk us through that. Yeah, no, she really did sort of change things in those final days before the vote yesterday. A lot of that was because she got a lot of bad international press. A lot of people were warning that a George Maloney government was going to be bad for Italy and bad for Europe. She is probably the least Eurosceptic of her of her center-right coalition. Matteo Salvini, the other partner in her coalition, and Silvio Berlusconi uh, of the Forza Italia, three-time prime minister of this country, are also very worrying for the greater European investors. Um, one of the big issues and questions is going to be how they're going to be on Russian sanctions. Both Salvini and Berlusconi have indicated they're sort of soft on it. Meloni, who's got the power in this trio, says she wants to continue support for Ukraine and wants to continue sanctions. So we're going to see some infighting in that coalition. But ultimately, she won the most votes. She's going to have the most power in that, Zane. And just speaking of the coalition, you point out the sort of discrepancies um, between uh, Salvini, between Berlusconi and also Maloney, who we're seeing on the screen right now, um, especially when it comes to Ukraine, which you just touched on, this idea that she's an ardent supporter of Ukraine in this war, whereas, you know, the other two members of the coalition seem to have supported Putin a little bit more in the past. Given that kind of discrepancy right now, how fragile is this coalition, do you think? Well, you know, she has 26%, according to the polls right now, and so we don't have the final numbers for a couple of hours yet, uh, of the vote in that coalition. And the other two coalition members each got 8 to 9%. So she really does have the power. But fractures can happen because you have to look at the total parliament. Call a parliamentary vote, um, everything could fall apart. Italian politics are very complicated, and coalitions, by their very nature, are always going to be fragile. You've also got very strong opposition in this election, even though they didn't do as well as she did. Some of them, the, the center-left party, did get a, a, almost as many votes as she got uh, alone in her party. It's, it's really all complicated in Italy. You know, last election, 2018, the Italian voters voted overwhelmingly for the anti-establishment five-star movement. That crumbled entirely. There were two governments since that last vote. Um, there have been 67 governments in the last 75 years in this country led by just 30 prime ministers. You know, it's a complicated place to be a politician, complicated country to run and to govern. And Giorgia Maloney has her work cut out for her. Yeah, it does sort of seem that, you know, political parties there in Italy sort of rise in the poll and are super successful and popular one minute and the next day everything come, comes crashing down. Bobby Nadeau, live for us there. Thank you so much for being with us.
All right. Heated protests continue in Russia over Moscow's partial mobilization order to draft 300,000 more troops for its war in Ukraine. Over the weekend, protests erupted in some of the country's ethnic minority regions, and Russians are still trying to flee the country. Look at that. Hundreds of cars waiting for hours in line near the border with Georgia. Uh, meantime, the U.S. is now responding to President Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons. If Russia crosses this line, there will be catastrophic consequences for Russia. The United States will respond decisively. Now, in private channels, we have spelled out in greater detail exactly what that would mean. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, in addition to a lot of people, significant number of people actually trying to flee Russia, you've got a lot of violent protests happening in the country right now. People simply do not want to be called up to fight in this war. And Zelensky, meantime, in Ukraine, adding fuel to the fire, saying, and I quote, Russian commanders, this is his message to Russians, Russian commanders do not care about the lives of Russians. They just need to replenish the empty spaces left by the dead, the wounded, those who fled, all the Russian soldiers uh, that were captured. It's certainly a chilling message uh, to the young men of Russia. Claire. Yeah, Zane, I think it's fair to say that the mobilization, which was already a gamble for President Putin, isn't exactly going to plan. The Kremlin even vaguely admitted as much today in their regular uh, call with the press. Uh, the spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said that there were mistakes uh, in terms of the mobilization. We've seen multiple reports of people who, who did not fit the, the official criteria announced by the president uh, last week being mobilized. He said he hopes those mistakes would be corrected. But much more than that, as you say, are, are these protests, which while still relatively small in terms of numbers, are significant in the climate of a crackdown on, on freedom of speech, on an intensified crackdown in terms of, uh, uh, of legal punishments for things like avoiding the draft and desertion. Putin, in fact, signed into law amendments to the criminal code uh, to that effect over the weekend. They are significant and they are not just now in the big cities. They are in the regions as well, places like Dagestan, uh, this morning, there was actually a shooting at a military recruitment office uh, in the central Siberian uh, region of Irkutsk. Uh, a, uh, a, a sort of a, an, an official involved in the recruitment was shot and a 25-year-old uh, was arrested. So there is a real climate of unrest that seems to be spreading. And we are seeing queues growing at the borders, the border with Georgia, uh, in particular, long lines. And the Finnish border guard said that over the weekend they saw uh, 16, more than 16,000 people, close to 17,000 people cross from Russia into Finland. The number on Sunday was more than 8,000, which was double the number uh, of the previous Sunday last week. So an, an exodus of people intensifying protests. I will just clarify that the numbers are still quite small, but in the climate of fear and, and sort of repression that we're seeing in Russia, they are very significant. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed out that the numbers are small because some people have questioned, look, when you're seeing these kinds of protests and people being so angry and fearful about this idea of being called up to fight and also people literally fleeing the country, some people have asked, well, what does this mean for Putin's hold on power? But it's important to note that he has such a tight uh, control over the military and the police in that country that this is unlikely to sort of be a threat to his grip on power. 
I mean, at this stage, it doesn't seem like it, Zane, but but it, it is a sea change that we're seeing in Russia because up until now, during this war, which, of course, Putin still calls a special military operation, it did not touch the everyday lives of Russian citizens. Yes, we saw inflation uh, going up. It has actually come down slightly from its peak uh, in Russia. Yes, there were cost of living issues, but mostly this was a war that, in the words of someone I spoke to in, uh, in Moscow last week, that they could abstract from their lives. Now it is knocking on their doors. There are people... Uh, Everyone knows someone who fits the bill, the official criteria uh, for this mobilization. Not only that, but people are worried that the mobilization could go further than those official criteria and actually extend to the rest of the population. So there is an, a real sense that this is now a conflict uh, that many, many people are going to have to go and fight in. Uh, and the information, while there is a very tight control of information in Russia, they are being fed a diet uh, on, on state media of, of, of the sort of violence perpetrated by Ukraine uh, against uh, Russian ethnic minorities uh, in Ukraine. Uh, there are still ways for people to get this information. And when it knocks at your door, when it's your relatives going to fight, there, there does seem to be uh, a, a sort of sense of, of cracks appearing in the war machine that the Kremlin has kept such tight control over so far. I see. So things are sort of changing slowly. Mm. Um, it does appear that way. Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Right. While the political conflict continues between Washington and Moscow, fighting on the ground in Ukraine rolls on. Despite Ukrainian troops reclaiming some territory, many residents face daily shelling. Our Ben Wiedemann has more. For a few loaves of bread, the residents of Kupiansk risk their lives. Ukrainian forces retook the city about two weeks ago, but the fighting is far from over. Yulia describes it in one word, intense. That's the echo of cluster bombs falling not far away. Sometimes I'm scared, says Danilo, over the sound of nearby shelling. Sometimes I don't care. These are the few people left in Kopiansk. This city, even though theoretically the Russians have left, the Russians are just across the river. And in fact, according to the soldiers here, there are still Russians inside the Ukrainian-controlled part of the city. Russian forces took control of Kupiansk with little fighting in the first days of the war. It served as the administrative center for the Russian-occupied part of the Kharkiv region. Pro-Russian sympathies linger on here. The Russians paid salaries and pensions, and the recent Ukrainian counteroffensive turned the city into a war zone, sparking resentment against both sides. They're one and the same, says Yevgeny. The mood of the population is shocked. It's too early and too dangerous to begin clearing away the rubble. Wreckage still scattered in the streets. Okay. Basically, there's a fairly constant thud of incoming and outgoing artillery and rocket fire here. An hour's drive away in the town of Izium, no shelling, but shell shock still shows on the faces of people waiting for food. The fighting has moved on, the scars it left deep. They hit my home, says Lyudmila. War spares no one, adds Katerina. The local fire station has become a warehouse for supplies donated by a town near Kiev. In her grandfather's arms, Alina recalls intense bombing. 
It killed our dog. It hit the roof. We were hiding in the basement, she says. Back in Kupiansk, a tank rumbles toward the front. The battle rages on. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Kupiansk, Ukraine. All right, still to come here on First Move, more on Italy's historic election. What a first female prime minister and her right-wing coalition could mean for the country and relations in the EU. And later, NASA's latest mission to save the planet. Details on its plan to crash into an asteroid on purpose in the name of protecting the Earth in the future. All right, stay with us. All right, welcome back to First Move. The UK pound dropped to a record low against the dollar after the British government announced biggest tax cuts in 50 years last week. Some economists calling for the Bank of England to raise interest rates to help try to increase the value of the currency. On Friday, Prime Minister Liz Truss defended her government's fiscal policy aimed at saving the economy. CNN's Jake Tapper sat down with her in this exclusive interview. Take a listen. Your government just unveiled a new uh, tax proposal this week. Uh, that would reverse plans that, uh, to raise the corporate tax rate. You've also proposed lifting the cap on bonuses uh, for bank executives. In the U.S., um, President Biden is taking a, a very different approach, and obviously he has a different view on economic measures such as the one you're proposing. He tweeted this week, quote, I am sick and tired of trickle-down economics. It has never worked. We're building an economy from the bottom up and middle out. And so President Biden is in, in essence, saying that he thinks your approach doesn't work. The opposition in Parliament says you're run, recklessly running up the deficit and turning your back on so-called compassionate, compassionate conservatism. Well, I don't. I don't really accept the premise of premise of the question at all. The UK has one of the lowest levels of debt in the G7, but we have one of the highest levels of taxes. Uh, currently, we have a 70-year high in our tax rates. And what I'm determined to do as Prime Minister and what the Chancellor is determined to do is make sure we are incentivising businesses to invest and we're also helping ordinary people with their taxes. And that's why I don't feel it's right uh, to have higher national insurance and higher corporation tax because that will make it harder for us to attract the investment we need in the UK. It will be harder uh, to generate those new jobs. And... You know, I want the US economy to be successful as well. I want the European economy to be successful as well. I want free, freedom-loving democracies to succeed. And one of the things that we're doing here in the UK is moving forward on our infrastructure programmes, uh, road building, uh, broadband, uh, mobile telephones. And I know that is what the administration in the US is doing as well. But of course, uh, we all need to decide what the tax rates are uh, in our own country. But my view is we absolutely need to be incentivising growth at what is a very, very difficult time for the global economy. And we've also put in place a package of measures to support consumers with energy prices, to make sure that nobody is having to pay more than £2,500 on their bills, which is very important as well. A UK government spokesperson said they would not be commenting on today's market moves. Our next guest says the UK has now entered a currency 
crisis. Vasilo Strikonasis is the head of European FX strategy at City. Thank you so much for being with us. So you heard Prime Minister Liz Truss just talk about the importance from her perspective of prioritizing growth. But when you combine these historic tax cuts with a huge amount of borrowing, just walk us through what that means for inflation in the UK and also government debt as well. Sure. Um, well, one of the issues that uh, personally I think a lot of other economists are taking with these announcements is the fact that they are based on the assumption that a government can actually target and achieve that growth rate. And there is really zero empirical as well as theoretical evidence to back this up. Uh, it's uh, the notion that governments can actually target a specific uh, growth rate and then be able to fulfill that promise has not been proven empirically at all. Now, the, the problem is that um, uh, we have um, a fiscal package which is sizable on the face of already high inflation. And we do have a precedent for that. Back around half a century ago, in 1972, uh, we still have had significant tax cuts, which actually amplified the uh, inflation pressures and led to a significant uh, depreciation in sterling. And uh, the other thing right now is that uh, we have one, uh, an already uh, large uh, UK debt. We have the Bank of England, who will actually be offloading its stock of government bond purchases, much like the Fed did, uh, has started doing. Um, and this will be happening in parallel uh, with uh, the Treasury actually flooding the market with, with uh, government bonds. So the risks here is uh, that inflation goes higher, even higher uh, than it would have been without the package. And secondly, that the Bank of England monetary policy becomes even tighter and therefore it suffocates the economy. And basically the market reaction is telling you this, there is an erosion of confidence here. And that's why you're seeing sterling uh, depreciating and uh, our view is they will keep on depreciating further. So in your view, I mean, yes, you point out it's, it's the sort of inflationary environment. It's the environment in which these tax cuts and this sort of large amount of spending is that's ha it's happening is part of the issue here, the inflationary environment. So what is the Bank of England's next move to combat um, inflation at this point? Is it likely that the Bank of England will raise interest rates even higher than previously anticipated in, on in order to combat uh, inflation here? Yes, very much so. It's, it's extremely likely, and I would really expect the Bank of England uh, to go ahead with uh, an unscheduled interest rate hike, potentially even today or, or over the next few days. The, the depreciation of selling and the increase in government bond yields uh, is definitely an element that uh, is putting a lot of upside pressure, both on inflation, on one hand through the depreciation of sterling, but also through tighter, stricter financial conditions. So basically borrowing becomes uh, far more difficult. Uh, the issue, however, is not whether they're going to do it, uh, but whether it's going to be effective. Mm -hmm. And my concern here is that it will prove to be only temporary effective. It will just give a temporary relief to Sterling. But again, the big picture, the picture about um, further pressures on inflation, um, as well as tightening, suffocating the economy are going to remain front and center to investors. And uh, that's why I think UK assets will remain under pressure.
Yeah, and there's also the lag time. There's a sort of lag time between when the Bank of England raises interest rates and when you actually see inflation actually coming down. I want to talk about something that uh, the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, said in response to how the markets were faring. Um, he said, markets move all the time. It's very important to keep calm and focus on the longer term strategy. From his perspective, it's not about the short term in terms of what the stock market does. It's much more about the long term. What do you make of that? Does he have a point here? Um, I'm afraid not. <laughs> and and, and it, it is actually, I think that the results of that strategy will be felt in the short term. Yes, there is likely to be a boost in growth uh, over the short term, but it's the medium uh, term um, implications that actually bother me uh, in the sense that uh, we know from previous experience, even in the UK, as well as from empirical research, that these fiscal packages, which again is important, um, uh, we're talking about sizable tax cuts as well as uh, um, finance through borrowing, are going to lead to higher uh, medium-term inflation. That that should be taken as given. Uh, and equally at the same time, as I said at the beginning, uh, th there is no precedent, uh, there is no backing to support the claim that uh, a government can actually uh, uh, deliver uh, a promised target growth. So I think Medium-term result is going to be, uh, I think, pain as far as the real economy is concerned, and I think it's going to be higher inflation. Yeah, it's interesting because um, Kwasi Kwarteng also intimated that more tax cuts were on the way in addition to these ones. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Vasilos Chikonakis, thank you so much. Head of European FX Strategy at City. Appreciate Pleasure. you being on the show. All right, more first move after the short break. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks opening lower as the U.K. economic turmoil fuels anxiety about a global recession. Investors also worry about uh, additional rate hikes by the U.S. Federal Reserve as well. Shares of casino operator Las Vegas Sands jumping as Pacao plans to allow tour groups from mainland China. Meantime, Lyft is falling after UBS downgraded the stock, citing a survey that indicates drivers prefer rival Uber. All right, back to one of our top stories at this hour, the Italian election, which is shaking Europe. Italy is set to get its most right-wing government since World War II. After a triumph uh, for a coalition led by the Brothers of Italy party, we expect the final result from that election later on today. It's an outcome, no doubt, causing consternation in Europe as leaders of that coalition have long held Eurosceptic views. Joining me live now is Wolfgang Piccoli. He's the co-president and director of research at Teneo. Um, Wolfgango, thank you so much for being with us. So awesome. based on what Maloney has said in the past, she's clearly somewhat of a Eurosceptic. What does this mean for the cohesion of the European Union, this idea that the brothers of Italy are now gaining power? Well, first of all, I would highlight that the Euroscepticism of Maloney and their allies has changed a lot since the pandemic, meaning nobody's talking about Euro exit or things like that. It is a much softer Euroscepticism. And also, I would also highlight that uh, Europe was not an issue at all in the election campaign. The election campaign was largely uh, driven by econ economic factors first. So in terms of what is next between Italy and Europe, um, it's, um, it depends, meaning that I believe that in the short term, Meloni will not rock the boat. 
Um, she's inheriting a very difficult agenda, especially on the economic front. She might like to, to play the real skeptic cards later on when she's going to see her popularity going down. And it will also depend on the European reaction um, on, in terms of how they're going to deal with their, with their government here. So it's still all to, to be seen. But as I said before, Europe here is not a big play in terms of explaining the outcome yesterday. And as you mentioned, the Euroscepticism we're seeing is, is much softer than what we've seen in the past. Uh, Georgia, has, Georgia Maloney has a lot on her plate right now, just in terms of a looming energy crisis. Obviously, inflation is a key issue, possibly even a recession. Um, what does she need to do to navigate all of that, especially given that she has very little government experience? Um, not only very little government experience, as you correctly say, but also she has got two very difficult partners. I think uh, plenty of time, she's going to have to de devote plenty of time managing Matteo Salvini, who just got a huge beating yesterday in the election, and also Silvio Berlusconi, uh, which is the longest running prime minister in Italy, so with plenty of experience. Um, Meloni needs to, to look at the economy first. So the first priority, I think, is going to be the energy story, uh, trying to contain the damage uh, the cost of the energy crisis to the Italian, basically, voters. There is a budget that needs to be put together before the end of the year and also need to accomplish the reforms and the benchmark, reach the benchmark required by the recovery fund to, so, to make sure that Italy will, uh, will succeed in receiving the next loan tranche from Brussels. So that is plenty already. It's going to keep her busy until the end of the spring. Else will come later. Yeah, she also needs to manage Italy's debt load. That's also a big issue for her as well. Uh, the, the debt load is a big issue for, for anybody. It's more than 150% of GDP. It's not a concern right now, frankly. Interest rates are still low. Uh, there is an ECB put that is keeping investors kind of at ease. Italy managed to extend the maturity of its debt over the last few years. So certainly that is not the priority. The question here is how to tackle that and specifically whether Meloni will be able to inject growth into the economy. That is a real challenge. This is a country that has not seen meaningful growth for more than 20 years. And that is going to be the biggest challenge for Meloni and their partners. During the campaign, you know, her rhetoric was quite fiery. Um, over the past sort of few days, we've seen her walk a lot of that back, tone her rhetoric down as she looks set to win this election. What does she need to say at this point, though, to actually calm investors? Because some investors are nervous about uh, the possibility of her being elected, which it looks likely uh, to happen. Um. I mean, if, if they are nervous, certainly they haven't really manifested itself. If we look at the spread in Italy has not increased substantially and so on. I think Belloni has been very skillful in the last few weeks of the election campaign in terms of trying to reassure Brussels, trying to reassure Washington and also investors. Now, what the investor will be looking next is a cabinet formation, specifically looking who is going to take the finance and economy minister job. Then the second one will be the budget, whether Italy will put together a budget that is credible uh, with the budget deficit that is under control. And this needs, needs to be done before the, the end of the year. So we'll be, this will be the first two indicators here, leaving aside then the various kind of uh, rhetoric that can be employed by anybody at this point. 
Politically speaking, how concerned should sort of people watching this election be about the health of this coalition? As you point out, uh, she has to manage Salvini, she has to manage Berlusconi. There's clearly fractures and divisions between these three individuals. What do you make of how fragile this coalition actually is? Uh, well, being in power is a very important and meaningful kind of glue. Um, it helps to keep uh, people with different uh, interests, uh, aims, uh, and personalities together. Uh, so here, first of all, Meloni, I think, will try to help her allies uh, when it's time to form the cabinet. So we will see position given to both the Lega and Forza Italia. Um, the, the Lega is very simply doesn't have an alternative here after just securing 9% of the vote, which is basically 50% less than what they got four years ago. They don't really have much, much else where to go at this point. So it's, it's more about noise, it's more about containing the damage that Berlusconi and Salvini could do when they open their mouths than actually real policies, because when they look at the policies, there are not significant differences here. But as you mentioned, one of the biggest decisions, just from an economic perspective, one of the biggest decisions she's set to make is really who she's going to choose as finance minister. As I pointed out, Italy is going through a lot in terms of energy crisis, in terms of inflation, obviously a possible recession. Who she picks for that role is crucial as investors uh, look to Italy right now. Who's on the shortlist and who is she likely to choose based on experience, do you think? Frankly, based on the experience that we have seen in the past, it's impossible to say. Uh, the problem that she has is that from her own party, uh, there are not really any particularly credible figure. So if, if she decides to send a positive message to investors, Brussels, uh, she would have to pick somebody from uh, outside the party. There have been some names floated around. Frankly, I wouldn't put a penny on each one of them. It's far too early to say. We need, first of all, to see the final result of this election. We need to see the balance of power within the new ruling coalition. And after that, we can start looking in the cabinet. And the cabinet will not be announced for the next 25, 30 days. So meanwhile, everybody will be speculating here. But also, let, I understand that there is is important who takes the finance minister's job. But let's be made let's make, make, make very clear that the shots are called by the prime minister, in this case, Giorgia Meloni, and not by the finance minister. Right, that is, that's a good uh, point to make. That's uh, an important distinction. Thank you so much, Wolfgang. I appreciate you being with Pleasure. us. Co-president and director of research at Teneo. Thank you. All right, a stern warning from Iran's government didn't keep people off the streets. We'll look at what's next after days of protests over the death of a young 22-year-old woman by the morality uh, police. Anti-government protests in Iran show no signs of stopping at this point in time, this despite a government crackdown. This protest video was obtained by CNN via the pro-reform activist outlet Iran Wire. Some 1,200 people have reportedly been arrested and more than two dozen killed. However, 
CNN cannot verify those numbers. The protests were sparked by the death of Masa Amini, who died in police custody after being arrested for allegedly violating Iran's conservative dress code. Jamana Karadze joins us live now with the details. So, Jamana, the president at this point is warning that protesters will be dealt with decisively. Um, what's been the overall reaction to that threat? Well, you know, Zane, there's a lot of concern. Those who know Iran really well are watching what's been going on over the past few days. And they say that we have seen this all before. The concern is we are seeing the signs of a crackdown that is ongoing and potentially is going to intensify. You've got the warning, as you mentioned, from President Raisi on Saturday saying that they're going to deal decisively with the protesters. You've had statements coming out from the army and the powerful Revolutionary Guard Corps saying that they are ready to intervene to stop these protests. And on Sunday, we saw these mass rallies taking place in Tehran and other cities, the government mobilizing its supporters, they say, in this show of unity against those who they described as rioters. And again, the government really, through its state media, dismissing what we have been seeing over the past uh, days in Iran, all those protests, the women taking to the streets, those defiant acts, they're dismissing that all as a foreign conspiracy uh, to to try and destabilize Iran. And they're making it very clear that they are going to use uh, everything they've got to stop this so-called foreign conspiracy. And the fear is saying is that they haven't really unleashed the full force of the Islamic Republic yet to try and suppress these protests, as we have seen happen with previous protest movements. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there are estimates in the dozens of people who have been killed so far. You've got Amnesty International saying that uh, protesters are being shot at deliberately uh, with live rounds. Uh, and then you've got the numbers of more than a thousand people who've been rounded up and detained, uh, according to the government's own figures uh, that are coming out. So there's a lot of concern concern about where this is all headed. And then you've got the issue that makes it very difficult for us to know what is really going on on the ground in real time. And that is the government um, really disrupting the Internet. We're seeing disruptions not seen on this level since the 2019 protests. Some of the most severe restrictions shutting down the network in many uh, different parts of the country. You've got uh, social media platforms that have been blocked, making it very difficult for us to communicate with people on the ground, making it very difficult for activists and protesters to get video and images out, information about what is going on on the ground. But still, on Saturday night, we, uh, sorry, on Sunday night, last night, we started receiving some video that shows protesters are still out. They're still on the streets. They're still defiant. Uh, we've also heard from eyewitnesses. One neighborhood of Tehran, for example, that hasn't seen protests in the past, protesters were out and they were chanting defiantly, death to the dictator. Uh, but again, with these internet disruptions, having very hard time reaching people on the ground to know what is really going on, it's very difficult for us to assess right now how widespread and how big these protests are in. Right, so the lack of transparency is a, is a huge issue uh, when it comes to really reporting out this story. Jamana Karadze, live for us there. Thank you so much for all the work that you've done here. All right, still to come here. On first move, a cosmic collision, 11 million kilometers from home. More on NASA's plan to deliberately crash a spacecraft into an asteroid. We'll explain why after the break. Elon Musk is set to answer questions from Twitter's lawyers soon about his contested $44 billion purchase of the company. The deposition 
is taking place ahead of a trial next month. Donny O'Sullivan is joining us live now from here in New York. So, uh, Donny, what sort of questions could Elon Musk's uh, be asked here? And how is it likely to pan out, especially given that Musk is somebody who certainly speaks his mind, uh, certainly has, at times, very little filter. How is mm. this likely to go? Yeah, pretty much no filter. Uh, <laughs> look, what we've seen on Twitter itself, the platform that, that Musk was uh, going to buy for $44 billion. Now he's trying to back out of that deal. That's what this case is all about. Uh, you know, we've seen him tweet off lots of different claims about Twitter, particularly uh, about all of this talk about how many bots are on the platform. That is why he is saying he is trying to back out uh, of this deal. Uh, but look, it's one thing it's one thing to tweet something. It's another uh, to make those claims uh, while being deposed under oath. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to, to see when we eventually get to see this non-public. We won't be learning today what, what, what uh, came of that. Uh, but I'm sure that Twitter's lawyers will be pushing uh, Musk on the claims that he has made publicly. And how much will Elon Musk rely on uh, the sort of testimony in the form of the words of Peter Zasko, that was the head of security, former head of security at Twitter, who talked very openly about some of the lax security policies at the company. Yeah, Peter Zacco, the, the cybersecurity legend uh, who was the, the head of security at Twitter, he came out uh, in interviews with CNN and The Washington Post uh, in August saying just how bad the security situation is at Twitter, but also uh, saying directly in the disclosure that has been made to multiple U.S. law enforcement agencies that Twitter has lied to Musk uh, about how many bots are on its platform. Now, Mudge coming out, Zacco coming out was quite fortuitous timing uh, for Musk because it seemed to play directly uh, into the case he is making against Twitter. And we asked the whistleblower about that timing. Have a listen. This isn't about one person. This is about um, something that everybody should care about with large companies, uh, which is, you know, uh, the honesty and the truthfulness of the data that's being presented, uh, publicly represented the national security uh, implications uh, and whether users can uh, can trust their data with these organizations. So those explosive claims that Zacco made uh, take going to be, play a huge role uh, in this public trial, which is going to be happening uh, beginning three weeks from today. It's expected to last a week in Delaware. Zane. Right, Daniel Sullivan, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, now to another issue that is on Elon Musk's radar, space. NASA is getting ready to crash a spacecraft into an asteroid. Yes, like a scene straight out of a science fiction movie, NASA is focused on the big picture, saving humanity. The mission is to test whether deflecting a giant space rock could protect Earth from a catastrophic collision in the future. Kristen Fisher has more. This comet is what we call a planet killer. It's what we call a global killer. Hollywood's been scheming up ways to save the world from killer comets or asteroids for decades. The United States government just asked us to save the world. Anybody want to say no? But instead of bringing in Bruce Willis, NASA has a different idea. And it's about to test it for the very first time. It's kind of what we all fear, right? What if there was an asteroid that was coming toward Earth? Can you really stop it? Can you really do something about it? And for the first time, our technology allows us to actually do something about it. 
NASA's planning to ram a refrigerator-sized spacecraft called DART into an asteroid named Dimorphos, which is roughly the size of the Pyramid of Giza and poses no threat to planet Earth. The goal is to see if the impact will push Dimorphos slightly off course. If it works, it means that this technique could be used to deflect a future killer asteroid that is headed for Earth. This inaugural planetary defense test mission marks a major moment in human history. For the first time ever, we will measurably change the orbit of a celestial body in the universe. Mission Control is inside the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland. What is this place going to be like on impact day, or impact night, I should say? Oh my goodness, it's going to be filled to the brink with people. There's going to be people in every single seat in the whole Mission Operations Center, about 44 people in here alone. And they'll be able to watch the impact live, as will everyone on Earth, thanks to a camera that's mounted on the spacecraft. These Multiple are live images. images. Live images from DART right now. One of the most tense moments for the team will happen at 50 minutes to impact, when the spacecraft will switch its sights from a bigger asteroid it's pointed at now to a smaller second asteroid, which is the real target. That's a very, very sweaty time for us. <laughs> so uh, we have a lot of contingencies built right around that 50-minute transition. We're going to be watching the telemetry like hawks, uh, very scared, but excited. And then we're going to have it get closer and closer and it'll fill the field of view of our imager. Then we're going to hit. It's a moment this team has been training for for months, but even the rehearsals have been tense. We just all one by one stood up with all of our headsets and all of us were intently watching the screens, mm -hmm. just watching the asteroid get bigger and bigger. And my heart was actually palpitating because I was like, this is not normal, <laughs> right? It, it's just a rehearsal, but yet you really felt like you were about to hit that asteroid for the first time. You're really testing we're the testing. technology that could potentially save all of humankind uh, down the road. Down the road, right. Now, we should know almost immediately on Monday night if the DART spacecraft successfully hit its target. But NASA says it's going to take a few weeks to determine if DART was successfully able to move that asteroid just a little bit off its current orbit. Kristen Fisher, CNN, Washington. And finally, when it comes to the Super Bowl halftime show next year, she is the only girl in the world. Pop icon Rihanna will headline the show. The nine-time Grammy Award winner made the announcement with this image of her hand holding an NFL football. All right, my friends, that is it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. You're watching CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.